Angels Glow. Flowers bloomed in the woods that populated the heart of hollow hills, and all over the countryside, in the copses and the dells, the thickets and the glens, color erupted. Chief among the varying greens, yellows, and reds ran all shades of blue. Periwinkle, sky, baby, ice, powder, morning, and all of their amalgamations and permutations. Nobody who lived there knew why it happened, but they accepted it as one of the many miracles of the place they called home. Hollow Hills was named after its lead architect, Henry Hollow, and Henry Hollow was progressive in every sense of the word. Had he lived much earlier, he would have been forced to testify in front of the HUAC. Not that he was a fellow traveler at all, even if he did sympathize with the plight of the worker. In Hollow Hills, he sought to build one of the nation's first fully planned communities, a place where every single citizen, regardless of class, wealth, or status, could live to the fullest of his or her potential. He planted parks, community centers, playgrounds, tennis courts, basketball courts, and all manner of cultural facilities throughout the town, including 52 miles of paved nature paths that wound from the largest mansion to the smallest apartment. Anybody at any time of the day, children, teenagers, adults, the elderly, could use those paths to access shopping or leisure facilities. Joggers ran on them in the mornings and evenings, walkers and strollers in the afternoons, and, when school let out for the day, Children walked home in groups or pairs, friends chattering about their classes, their dramas, their victories and defeats, planning their feats, talking about what boys they liked or what girls they hated, strolling aimlessly and laughing and having fun, or, as in the case of poor Angel Fletcher, running for her life. Angel had, a few hours before, the temerity to exist in the same relative sphere as Kenzie Washington. Kenzie Washington, who was nearly 18 years old and still a freshman in high school, Kenzie Washington, who transferred to Terrace Point High School from Watson High School the year before, and from Lake Park High School to Watson High School the year before that, and from Julius Frontispiece High School to Lake Park High School the year before that. Kenzie Washington, one of the foremost practitioners of what administrators like to call Reform School Roulette. And like Roulette, at least its Russian variety, it wasn't ever a question if Kenzie Washington would pull the trigger on the right chamber, but when. One thing that was certain, and certainly universal, about the Kenzie Washingtons of the world was their recruitment of neophytes, acolytes, toadies, creepers, crawlers, grovelers, spaniels, cow towers, lick spittles, and sycophants, all of them boasting a similar lack of intelligence or, if intelligent, questionable morality and or maturity, all of them certainly too young for the Kenzie Washingtons of the world to consider them as authentic peers, for that was how it worked. The behavior, attitudes, and general malaise that accompanied a girl like Kenzie Washington not to mention the chaos she engendered wherever she roamed, that once attracted so many of her classmates early on in her life, had, as they grew up, and she did not, steadily steered her from notorious popularity to discomforting presence to complete social pariah. She was, as one particularly astute teacher once described, the kind of person who could talk a police officer into arresting her for no reason at all. 
Kenzie and her crew had surprised Angel just outside school grounds as she was crossing the basketball courts on her way home. And a surprise it most definitely was. Angel worried about Kenzie in the hallways. Angel worried about Kenzie in the locker room. Angel worried about Kenzie in the cafeteria. Her walk home, however, was her one respite from the fear of being attacked for a very simple reason. Kenzie rode the bus, and Angel had Darius. Darius was pretty much Angel's only friend. They'd lived next door to each other since they were in kindergarten, gone to each other's birthday parties, played together on the playgrounds. They grew apart a little in middle school after her dad died. Darius joined band and got involved in student government. Angel retreated to her room in her books. But they still walked to and from school together. Darius talked to her about politics and his job. Angel listened, enjoying the company. But Darius often had to stay after for various clubs. And on those days, Angel chose to walk home via the athletic fields, where several coaches, a trainer, and possibly an administrator or two were sure to be supervising the spring athletes. But all of the teams had away games that day, unbeknownst to Angel, a fact that Kenzie and her goons were all too aware of. And so they chased Angel, and Angel ran. Her backpack shifted on her shoulders, weighing her down. She would have ditched it. She should have ditched it. Her books were too heavy, her binders too bulky, but the backpack used to belong to her father. It was the last thing of his that she owned. A stupid black canvas backpack with a rip in the front, a rip she held together with a whole bunch of buttons she found in his dresser after he died. They were from all the old rock shows he'd gone to, featuring the bands that played the soundtrack of her childhood. The Who, The Rolling Stones, The Police, Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Stone Temple Pilots. When she ran out of his buttons, she used a button they gave to all the incoming freshmen her first year in high school. It had a picture of the school mascot on it, the Terrace Point Terrapin, with the school's initials above it. Under it was printed, Home of the Terrible Terrapins. Terrible was right. She hated high school. It was stupid, she knew, to put the button of the place she hated the most alongside all of those classic rock bands. And she'd always meant to replace it with something better, something of her own. But then the years went by, and she forgot about it. And then it became kind of funny, and then she liked it. So she kept the backpack on her back, and she ran across the practice fields, and she ran across the student parking lot, and she ran down the hill that led to the path that led to the tunnel that burrowed under Route 5. Halfway through the tunnel, she fell and scraped her knee, tearing a hole in her jeans and cutting the 50-yard lead she had on her pursuers down to 30. Their breaths and footsteps echoed behind her, along with Kenzie's hysterically screamed, I'm gonna kill you, Felcher! Felcher being the disgusting nickname she'd given Angel, which, appropriately, spread throughout the school faster than a pregnancy scare. Angel limped out of the tunnel and turned left at the fork in the path. She briefly considered hiding behind the huge sign that read, Hollow Hills Creek Restoration Project Now Underway, but thought it was too much of a gamble. She also thought she could double back and climb the hill that led up to Route 5, maybe flag a car down, maybe run all the way back to the school. But the hill was too steep and her legs already tired and she didn't think she could make it to the top before Kenzie tackled her and hauled her back down and delivered whatever satanic beating she had in mind. But staying on the path was also a death wish. Surely if it came down to a flat-out foot race, Kenzie, with her fully developed 18-year-old legs, would run her down like a truck. So the woods it was. Angel was short and wily. She could duck and dash and shuck and juke her way around the prickers and bushes and branches. And even though the underbrush was thick with spring growth, she'd be less slowed down than the elephantine menace galumphing behind her. But the gamble didn't work. The prickers and bushes that slowed Kenzie down slowed her down, too. And by the time she reached the ridge that used to overlook the rushing water of Hollow Hills Creek, they were right on her tail. Trapped, 
She stopped and spun around to face her tormentors. Kenzie crashed out of the brush first, followed by her first little toady, then her second, then her third, fourth, and fifth. Kenzie eyeballed Angel like a predator. Thought you could get away, huh? Nobody gets away from me. Angel tried to stand up straight. She rolled her shoulders back, eyes flitting from face to face. Why did they hate her so much? What had she done? Kenzie sneered. What? Don't got anything smart to say? She's too busy crapping in her pants, Kay. Angel let her eyes rest on Kenzie's. What do you want? What do I want? She cocked her arm and slapped Angel across the face, delivering a mighty wallop that rocked her head back and echoed in the woods. That's good for a start. Then she did it again and again. And when she wound up a fourth time, Angel stepped in and delivered her own punch, a solid hit to the stomach that knocked the wind out of Kenzie, who woofed and warbled backwards. Her minions were startled silent. Kenzie looked back at them, saw their alarm, and turned to glare at the little rabbit in front of her. Bad idea, Felcher, she said. She grabbed Angel by the shirt and dragged her to her face. I'm gonna... This wasn't Angel's first fight. She'd faced worse at home. There wasn't any point in waiting for anyone to help her. In her experience, it always worked in her favor to strike before whoever was attacking was ready for it. So she did it again. With a scream, she raked her nails down Kenzie's face from her eyes to her chin, drawing blood. Kenzie cried out and shoved Angel as hard as she could in the chest. An angel, off balance and flailing, tripped over a root and dropped over the ridge. A scream, a thud, and then nothing. Kenzie leaned carefully over the edge. The creek bed was dry. Only rocks and sand remained. Where Angel should have been lying, dead or unconscious, was a large, round hole, and out of that hole beamed an eerie electric blue light. Come on, guys, she said. She turned around. Let's... But they were already gone. Ian returned home late from the war. He had no family to greet him, no friends other than those he'd lost in Afghanistan or those who re-upped for another tour. Alone and suffering, he did what many veterans did and turned to alcohol and then drugs to fill the void, to stop his brain from telling him all the horrible things it liked to tell him and showing him all the horrible things it liked to show him. It was not long before he was on the streets. The volunteers at Micah knew him well. If pressed, they would have described him as Sweet Ian. He's one of the good ones. Wouldn't hurt a fly. Terrible habit, though. He'll drink or snort or shoot whatever's available. Ian usually spent the night at the park in the middle of town, curled up on a bench under his army jacket and poncho, his backpack for a pillow. But the annual spring fair was scheduled for early next month, and the police had been calling all the usual homeless haunts, scattering the transients and arresting those who fought back just to make the streets a little more presentable to the 5,000 or so tourists who descended annually upon the little community to fill the local coffers. Ian didn't like to be any trouble. Though he hated jail, he hated the shelter even more, so of course he wasn't going to fight the police. But the only place he could go was a canal path, and the canal path, while just as dangerous as, if not more than, the shelter, at least afforded him an easy escape. He found a thicket next to the tunnel that ran under Route 5. If anything were to happen... If he was attacked as he had been in the past, the road was easily accessible. 
All he had to do was run up a short embankment, a shopping center with a 24-hour wife sat on the other side. But the tunnel was dark and filled with shadows that were easy to hide in, and naturally, that's where the worst of them liked to squat, eyes glinting in the moonlight, claws out. So he nested up in the woods to one side, using a green tarp as camouflage. One night, he awoke late with a bladder full of rye and a head full of voices and, sneaking out of his den, he stumbled through the brush, the dry leaves and fallen sticks crunching and cracking underfoot, and relieved one, but not the other. Telling you, doctor, I ain't got no more wrong with me than the rent. Ain't nothing going on but the rent. Tell me I'm crazy, Will. I say all y'all's crazy. What? The last word he directed to the dark sky, because he heard a strange noise, as if an electric wand was being waved back and forth next to his ear. After he finished and arranged himself, he turned around to see the most terrible and most wonderful sight. A weird blue glow was floating along the path, pulsing warm and heavy in the night as it drifted toward him. Oh, no, sir. No, sir, he muttered. Not tonight. For Ian had seen plenty of strange things in his time on the streets. Creatures that crawled out of the muck of the river. Beasts that swooped down from black holes in the sky. He knew enough to leave them be lest they turn their wicked claws and burning eyes upon his soul. And that was exactly what he planned on doing when he saw the blue thing coming his way. Turn and creep back to his burrow in the brush. Close his eyes and shake and pray and hope it passed him by. But the blue glow dimmed as it grew nearer. And instead of a horrible monster, it revealed a young girl. Her clothes were torn and shredded, and she was shivering, walking with her arms wrapped around herself. A canvas backpack hung from her shoulders. Ian was stunned and concerned. The only girls he ever saw on the path this late were tricks or homeless like him, but he'd never seen this one before, not at Micah or the library or any of the other familiar places, and she looked terrified and confused. He was about to go to her and offer his jacket when he heard voices, male voices, laughing and jeering from the direction of the tunnel and two men emerged, two men he'd also never seen before. They stopped when they saw her, one hitting the other in the chest with the back of his hand. What are you doing out here, little girl? The first one said. He put his hand in his pocket. What happened to your clothes? The girl stopped and eyed them like a cornered animal. She shot a look over her shoulder. I, I... The two men laughed. Oh, she's ripe, the second man said. Wouldn't you say, Dweez? Dweez licked his lips. Riper than ripe. She's a... A blueberry! No, I... The girl said. I need help. I... Oh, you definitely need help. You think I can fix her up, Boone? Mm-mm. Me first. She turned to run, but Dweez lunged for her, grabbing her by the hair in the backpack. She screamed and he spun her around and she lashed out and scratched him down the cheek, drawing blood. Dweez felt the rut she dug into his face. His hand came away red. He stared at it the anger welling inside him. You bitch, he yelled, and he slapped her as hard as he could, sending her head rocking back. No, sir, Ian yelled. He stomped out of the woods and onto the path. No, sir, no, sir. The two men spun around, surprised to see the dark form growling out of the woods. Who the fuck are you? Boone asked. Ian stopped short and waved an angry finger at them. You leave a bee now, you hear? She's sick, can't you see? She need a doctor. No, no doctor. Screw off, you crazy old man. No, no, sir. You leave her alone. You... Boom was on him in a flash. Ian fought back, but he was too old, too tired. He felt the steel blade slide in and out of his belly once, twice, three times, and then he was on his back, moaning. Boom laughed, and the blade came again, more times than he could count. And then, from behind his attacker, 
He saw the glow, erupting like the night's sun. It was the girl, her whole body burning silvery blue, pulsing like cold heat. Sparks shot out of her hair like Roman candles. Ian looked into his murderer's eyes and saw little cobalt bolts threading through his irises. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, he said. The girl screamed. She was looking at her hands. Dweez, what the fuck is this? She looked at him. What the fuck, man? Dweez, who had been watching his friend stab the old man, backed away, confused. What the fuck? How did you know my name? Dweez, it's me, Boone, she said. It's, it's me. She reached for him, and he flinched away. You're crazy, kid. He took out his own knife and unfolded the blade. The girl held out her hands. No, wait! The man who stabbed Ian, the real Boone, pushed himself off the ground. He looked at his own blood-smeared hands that were holding the knife, as if seeing them for the first time. Dweez, I'm Boone, the girl said. I'm Boone! She crept closer to him as she spoke, finally getting close enough to paw at his arm. Dweez pulled it away, disgusted. Get off me, you freak! He slashed at her, cutting a long gash in her chest, and she stumbled back. Boone screamed and launched himself at his friend. He was much larger and much stronger, and though his friend screamed and cried, Wait! Stop! Boone! He stabbed and stabbed and stabbed until there were no more screams, no more cries. And when he was done, he got up and turned to look at the girl. What the fuck is happening, man? She said. What the fuck is happening? Boone started to glow, the blue light infusing his skin, and Ian could see his veins just beneath the surface, his skull, his beating heart, his pulsing blood, and the balls of light shooting out of his head. But Dweez wasn't done yet. He struggled to his feet behind his friend, bloody and mangled and breathing like a whipped dog, his own knife raised above his head. He lurched forward, aiming for Boone's neck. And right before he did it, right before blade sank into meat, severed artery, shredded windpipe, Ian saw the most spectacular thing extend between Boone and the girl, an electric tunnel. And through the tunnel, he saw the girl, a beautiful blue angel outlined in silver, fly out of the man's body as the man, Boone, outlined in red, shot out of hers. They slammed back into themselves, the girl free of her assailants, Boone just in time for his friend's knife to thunk into his neck. Springtime was the worst. Whenever Sebastian Battle thought of it, he was reminded of a quote his high school English teacher once put on the board. Mrs. Washington, a formidable old crone. He couldn't remember much of anything that she taught him, couldn't remember much of anything from high school at all. Most of it was a whirlwind of worksheets and bubble tests, endless mounds of paper pushed down rows of desks, dutifully filled in and pushed back up to the front. And Mrs. Washington was one of the worst of the paper pushers. At one point, she might have been an impassioned educator, someone who challenged her students, gave them interesting projects, provided proper feedback on essays, raised expectations. But Battle had gotten her when she was close to retirement. After years of district, state, and federal mandates and initiatives had beaten the rah-rah out of her, and she was short-timing it until the end, which she timed for the middle of the first semester of the following year. Something she didn't have to do, but, according to the rumors, she purposefully scheduled in order to make life harder for the principal who, she apparently, hated a lot. Her class consisted of three things, vocabulary lists, vocabulary quizzes, and silent reading followed by bubble tests. 
complete and repeat. Mrs. Washington had a dry erase board that she hung at the front of the classroom. She liked to write quotes from her favorite books on it, or lines from speeches or television shows or pretty much anything she read, heard, or watched. Once, a student made the mistake of trying to write his own quote on the board, and she threw a stapler at his head. It would have connected, too, if he hadn't seen it and ducked. This is mine, she told him, glaring. It's for me. Amongst her other plentiful and more noticeable irritations, Mrs. Washington disliked spring about as much as most of the students disliked her. One morning in late April, she stomped into her room with red puffy eyes and sounding like she was speaking underwater. It was the first time Battle felt anything but disrespect for the woman, because he too suffered from allergies. He remembered her strutting right up to her whiteboard, pen already in hand, and starting her quote with something like, Again comes spring. The rest of the class groaned. At the sound of her students' moans, she snapped her head and uttered a curt, Shh! silencing the grousers. Then she finished the quote. Again comes spring, with nasty little birds yapping their fool heads off, and the ground all mucked up with plants. She underlined the word plants three times, pressing so hard that the tip of the marker broke. Battle had never seen that happen before. Then she fixed her red-rimmed, watery eyes upon the class, as if daring anybody to contradict what she had written. Nobody did. When she was certain she'd cowed everybody, she slumped over to her desk and picked up a stack of vocabulary tests. The students looked around at each other. It was Monday. They hadn't gotten the new list yet. Twenty minutes, she barked as she passed them out. But... Miss Washington, a boy in the back said, we didn't get 20 minutes. Every year since, when the winter snows subsided and the creeks thawed and the chill morning air lasted no longer than the time it took for the sun to crest the horizon, and the lymph nodes under Battle's jaw began to swell and ache, and the membranes in his nose started to clog and drip, Battle wrote that quote down on a whiteboard he'd hung on the wall in his office. Then he would turn around and bark, 20 minutes, at his empty desk, and then he would chuckle to himself. The morning after Angel found herself chased and almost killed, then attacked and almost killed again, he got to work early, unlocked the door to his office, set his briefcase down on the floor next to his desk, and, after sneezing four times in a row, wrote his old teacher's quote down on his whiteboard. Twenty minutes, he said, and got right to work. By eleven, he was nose deep in a slip and fall case, performing a background check on a woman who claimed to have pulled her back on a wet floor at the Rosemart. No prior arrests, nothing in her criminal report, nothing that sent up any immediate red flags. He'd watched the video a dozen times. It looked legitimate enough. She didn't check out the security camera placement before she went down or post a lookout for any staff. There she came into view. There was the wet spot, courtesy of a leaky ceiling. There was the fall. But what made him suspicious was the number of times she passed the area before she slipped and fell. Once, twice, three times, four times, six times. And it was in the fishing gear aisle. Not that women didn't fish, but she hardly looked the type. It took him an hour of pouring through local court documents, but he found it. A different lawsuit from three years earlier. She'd been rear-ended while returning a rental car and left the scene of the accident, only to return 20 minutes later claiming a sore neck and wrenched back. The suit took over three years, but she was eventually awarded $200,000. And after medical bills, that left her with $100,000. Enough to live comfortably on her salary, which he also had access to, for two years. Battle checked her employment history. She hadn't worked a day since the car accident. The fall at Rosemart was, then, perfectly timed. Gotcha, he said. Or maybe not. It was something to pursue, at least. He was about to contact the doctor who diagnosed the woman's injuries when a knock came at his door, and it opened before he could say, come in. A familiar face, not unwelcome, but not necessarily welcome either, poked itself inside. 
Sebastian Battle, how the heck are you? William Keyes, his former boss. He tossed a folder on Battle's desk and threw himself down into the client's chair. Have a seat, Battle said. Funny. Take a look at that right there. Tell me what you see. Sighing, Battle pushed himself away from his work and leaned back in his chair and folded his hands across his stomach. I'm not in the game anymore, William. You know that. Yeah, yeah, what are you doing now, insurance fraud? He glanced around Battle's tiny office, clearly unimpressed. Bored out of your mind yet? How goes homicide? Lost your faith in humanity yet? On the contrary, every case I solve reaffirms my belief in the innate goodness of the human soul. The bad guys are out there, but so are we. Battle smiled. William always did have a flair for the dramatic. It's why he liked working for him. You ever think about taking up community theater, William? You'd make a great Iago. He's the one with the fight scene, right? Right. William tapped the folder. I think you'd be interested in this one, given your particular pedigree. There he goes again. Battle would never be able to escape his family legacy. It didn't help that he was the fourth Sebastian Battle in the line. Sharing a name apparently meant sharing talents and interests. It was why William put him on all of the weirdest cases in the city. The famed river monster turned out to be a young journalist looking to create a name for himself. The blood bone butcher, some crazy old coot mulching people to fertilize his flowers. And the market tunnel disappearances, rumored to be the work of a squid monster, but ultimately unsolved. Battle gestured at his laptop. This is the extent of my investigations these days, William. If you need me to research something or find some financial documents... Oh, come on, Battle. I know you miss it. Miss what? The horror or the danger? Let me just tell you about this one. It's a humdinger. Got all the boys stumped. Battle's stomach growled. The clock on his Mac said 11.30. He usually ate lunch at this time took a walk to one of the downtown restaurants or brought his own to one of the benches on the river walk and ate there. But he liked William. He was one of the better bosses he'd ever had. He rolled his eyes. Fine, he said. But if you're not done by noon, I'm, I'll be done in five minutes, William said, already reaching for the folder. Later, at home, Battle sat at his kitchen table, the folder William left him splayed out in front of him. Reports, pictures, and all sorts of other important documents. A glass of beer, half full, his unfinished dinner. William was right. Battle was interested. He didn't want to be. He wanted to live his life along without the consequences of exciting murder cases. The anxiety, the dyspepsia, the drinking, the sleeplessness, the depression, the inevitable downward spiral into the black nihilism that seemed to plague his family as a result of witnessing the worst humankind had to offer. But this case was just too weird to ignore. Three victims, all homeless drug addicts, Two he knew from his time before, Blake Boone and his cousin, David Dweez Moss. They'd been in trouble since they were kids, graduating from vandalism and petty larceny to assault and burglary and all the jail time that went along with it. Apparently, they'd gotten in a fight over something, money probably, or drugs. They had each other's blood all over them, murder weapons in their hands. But it was uncharacteristic of the pair. They'd been inseparable since kindergarten. Dweez wasn't that case, but there wasn't anything he could do to warrant this kind of response from his cousin. The boons and the mosses were tight as ticks. And then there was the third victim. Battle picked up the report on him. Ian Cummings, Afghanistan war vet, decorated, honorable discharge, in a coma now, but wide awake when the EMTs brought him in, raving about the witch, the witch, and something else, too. Battle scanned the report. The witch, the witch, God's bones and blue fire. It was the God's Bones comment that cinched his decision to take the case. William knew that going in, didn't he? How could he not? 
It was what the Battle family was famous for. Sebastian Battle, the first in his line, survived the Battle of Washington because of it. Lying there in the ruck of bleeding men, his belly slashed and punctured by bullet and bayonet, he should have died of blood loss and infection. But, in the night, as he felt the life running slowly out of him, as the flies buzzed and lit upon him in such numbers as to feel like the Lord of Lies himself had released them, his body and the body of the injured and the dead that littered the field were coated in a strange blue glow. It took two days for the medics to clear the field, and they were astounded to find many of the men still alive. Indeed, while most suffered the same fate as many of those injured in the Civil War, with limbs hacked off or left to die painfully, with only morphine and whiskey as anesthetic, Battle himself didn't just survive his wounds, he thrived in his convalescence, as did the other men who had been coated with the blue substance. God's bones and blue fire, the man had said. Battle read over the report one more time. The assault had taken place on the canal walk, near the tunnel that went under Route 5. He checked his phone. It was 9 o'clock. Too dark to really be able to inspect the scene, but he was wide awake now, and intrigued. Grimacing, he tapped at his screen and put his phone on speaker. It rang a few times, then William picked up. I knew it! I knew you'd take it! Yeah, I'll take it, but I need a retainer, William. I don't work for free. How much? Battle told him. Done. And you're signing the contract personally. I'll send it to your email. Anything else? Battle thought for a moment. One time, he said. This is the one and only time. Angel didn't remember how she got home. She remembered the chase in the fall. She remembered coming around as she was walking on the path. She remembered the men surrounding her. She remembered the anger swelling up inside her and how she felt like she was flying through the air. And then she was in one of them, inside him. And he was inside of her. And then she was standing next to her mailbox. A wave of dizziness hit her, hit her hard, and she leaned over and was sick on the lawn. Steve's lawn. Steve was her mother's boyfriend. Well, technically he was Angel's stepfather, but she refused to think of him that way. She didn't like him, and he didn't like her, and she was happy to keep it that way. Steve, among other things, was very particular about his belongings. His stupid hi-fi stereo, his stupid video game console, his stupid car, and above all else, his stupid lawn. He was going to freak out about her puking on it. He spent endless hours seeding, fertilizing, mowing, and raking it. I'm surprised I've never found him down on his hands and knees cutting it with a pair of scissors, she once told Darius. She'd meant it sarcastically, enjoying the image of him tweezing imperfections out of the ground like a surgeon working on a tumor. And then one day she came home from school and saw him down on his hands and knees with a pair of scissors doing just that. He didn't even look up when she approached, but said, Did you put these here? Put what there? These! These! He was holding something in the palm of his work gloves. It looked like pieces of a dandelion. Did I put the dandelion on the grass? But he'd already gone back to his work, muttering to himself. Angel had not been sure if it would matter, the muttering. Sometimes it did, sometimes it didn't. That night, fortunately, it didn't. 
She didn't know where throw-up would land on his irritation scale, though. Would it be verbal or violent? Would she get a few bruises or a broken arm? Maybe there was enough nitrogen in it that he would think it was good for the grass. She chuckled at that one. The wound in her chest wasn't as deep as she thought. In fact, it had already started to heal. But her neck hurt. Bad. She put her hand on the back of it and rubbed. It felt like she had a gash there, like she'd been stabbed. But when she explored the area, her fingers came away dry. It still hurt. The lights in the living room were on, but the upstairs was dark. Her mother would be at work, which meant Angel would have to spend the whole night with Steve. Alone. She opened the door, wincing at the whine of the hinges, and stepped inside as quietly as possible, pausing in the foyer with a cocked ear. The television blared in the living room. Steve would be watching sports, as usual, and drinking beer, as usual. He'd be at least six deep by this point. When she was sure he hadn't heard her, she eased the door back into the jam, not releasing the knob until the bolt slid through the plate. She turned around to go upstairs, and about halfway up, one of the floorboards creaked, and Steve called, Angel? And Angel practically bounded up. Hi, Steve. Do you know what time it is? Your mother's been worried sick. At the top of the stairs, she yelled, Got a lot of homework, and slipped down the hall and into her room where she locked the door behind her and jammed the extra bolt into place. When she was sure he wasn't coming up after her, she breathed a sigh of relief. She finally removed her backpack, amazed that it was still on. Some of her books and binders had fallen out, and she was a little upset, but not at all shocked, that a few of her buttons were missing too. She tossed it on her desk, thinking about what had happened. She made that guy hurt his friend. It was like she was inside him, controlling his arms, his legs, his thoughts. She was magic. She had magical powers. That was the only explanation. She could body jump. She could make people do things and she could jump back into her own body. A million possibilities flooded her mind, some of them fun and innocent, some of them dirty and illegal. She thought about how strange her day had gone. She thought about Kenzie, and it made her angry. Who did she think she was? And that's when Angel realized exactly what she was going to do to get her back. And it wouldn't be pretty. She practically floated through the rest of her evening, and that night, for the first time in a long time, she drifted off into a wonderful, comfortable sleep. She was so refreshed and happy in the morning that when she woke up and skipped off to the shower, she didn't even notice a trickle of blood that had leaked out of her mouth and onto her pillow. Kenzie was holding court at the lunch table, lording over her ninth and 10th grade toads, telling this one to shut up, taking that one's french fries. She'd just told a stupid joke, one that she'd told a dozen times before and which nobody at her table thought was funny anymore, even if they still laughed, even if a little too hard, when everyone stopped laughing to look, dumbfounded at something behind her. What? she said, and then a full carton of milk was dumped over her head. The lunchroom erupted in a chorus of oohs and woes. What the hell? she screamed. She leaped out of her seat and spun around, and there stood that little bitch, Angel. Kenzie thought she was, well, if not dead, badly injured. But there she was, alive, unhurt, and smirking. I'm going to kill you, she shrieked. She lunged for the smaller girl. And then things seemed to get jumbled up. She felt weightless for a moment, like she'd shed her body. And then her perspective completely changed. She was no longer lunging for the nerdy little pipsqueak whose head she was about to stave in. But rather, she was watching someone who looked like her, lunging. For her? How? At first, she couldn't fathom it. She thought that maybe she'd been seeing things. That the girl she was now looking at was the one who had dumped the milk on her head. 
that somehow she'd mistaken who or what or... But how could that be? She stared at herself, horrified. The thing that was now Kenzie waved and smiled like it had just eaten her cat. Hi, Kenzie, it said. Kenzie inside Angel looked at her hands. They were white. Her arms were white. She was white. She was... She was... She let out a bloody howl. What is this? What is this? The Kenzie thing turned to the crowd of kids gathered around them at least ten deep. Many of them were holding up their devices, filming. She smiled and waved at them, too. Hey, everybody. You all know how I'm a piece of garbage, right? The kids let up a giant cheer. It's because my daddy left my mommy because he's gay, and she's a meth head who sucks dick for ice. Kenzie inside Angel screamed and rushed her, but only received a hard right hook for her efforts. A few administrators were pushing their way through the pack, yelling, Get out of the way! Now! The Kenzie thing took note. I'm going to have to make this quick. How many of you want to see me take a crap on the floor? Every single kid in the cafeteria, even Kenzie's toadies, screamed out a massive yes. She held up her arms in triumph, and when she was sure she'd whipped them all into a proper frenzy, she finally caught Kenzie inside Angel's eyes. And rub it in my hair. An even louder roar. No, Kenzie inside Angel pleaded, please. But the Kenzie thing only smirked in response. Then it unbuckled its belt and slowly squatted down. Battle worked his frog cases all day long, knocking out case after case, filing the paperwork, doing his job. Though he was focused and productive, the other case, William's case, had latched onto the back of his mind like a spider. He kept sneaking looks at the folder he'd left sitting on the corner of his desk. It was a plain manila folder, an inter-office mailer, the kind with a string-tie clasp and the lines and columns for people to write down recipients' names and addresses. From the looks of it, that particular folder had been around since the 80s. The lines were all filled up, the names and dates smudged into hopeless illegibility, and the paper so worn and handled that it had softened like a blanket. Battle didn't know he was staring at it until a few minutes had passed. He thought about what William said the day before. I know you miss it. And the truth was, while, yes, Battle didn't miss the horror or the danger, his current work, absorbing as it could be, never seemed to be enough. He already made himself a deal. He could work on the fun case after his real work was done. Huh. Fun case. That's how he thought of it now. A little disappointed in himself, he picked the folder up and was about to shove it away when a portion of the report slid out of the top and onto his lap. Battle snickered. <laughs> okay, all right. He read it, reluctantly at first, then with increasing interest. Before he knew it, the whole folder was open on his desk, his frog case left unfinished on his computer. He looked up after an hour, surprised to see how much time had passed, unsurprised at what he knew he was going to do next. He went to the little safe he kept anchored to the wall behind him, dialed in the combo and opened the door. His badge and gun rested inside. They sat comfortably on his belt. A phrase came to mind as he stood up, knees popping, a family phrase that had been passed down from his father and his father's father. It was so appropriate for the moment that he shook his head and said it out loud. God's bones, Battle. God's bones. Battle's allergies swelled with the insects in the bushes. He knew it was going to be a bad one when, five seconds after leaving his office, his eyes started to itch and one of his lymph nodes started to hurt. The AC in the car helped, but the walk from the street down to the canal path was brutal, and he wasn't even halfway to the scene when his nose began to run. Slowly at first, like the old men he kept passing who were out for their morning exercise, but gradually faster. He popped an Allegra and wiped his upper lip with a handkerchief. A few new moms were out too, 
pushing strollers populated with wiggling toddlers, or, if they were lucky enough to find a sitter, running with a friend. A businessman enjoyed a bench on the path, staring at the murky canal water, either deep in thought or deep in depression. Another old man inched by, giving him a nod as he power-walked in the other direction. That section of the path was well known to the members of the police force who patrolled the city. It was close to the tunnel, which was close to the road, which was close to the strip mall with a supermarket and a liquor store in it. At night, it was a haven for junkies, rapists, and the homeless. During the day, it was just another part of the path. Somebody, most likely one of the aforementioned groups, had already torn down the yellow police tape. Strips of it hung from tree branches and bushes, waving in the breeze that blew pollen-like dust across the path. Battle sneezed. Three times. He should have worn a mask. And thicker sunglasses. The blood had been washed off the grass, but the stains on the path remained. Battle wandered around the scene, wondering how much of it had already been contaminated. He found Ian Cummings' nest, a nub of a candle, a bottle of Boone's farm. A dark cloud covered the sun, relieving the heat if only for a moment. He could almost pinpoint the moment when the Allegra kicked in. His nose dried up, his chest stopped wheezing, and the mild ache in his head stopped altogether. He went back out to the path and knelt down, seeing if he could catch something in the grass. There wasn't anything there. Cigarette butts, bottle caps, broken glass, bits of plastic. He'd taken the police report with him, and he opened it up in front of him. The contents were, of course, nuts. Subject one states, she sparkled, he muttered to himself, just like an angel. Yet there were burns on the path, black circles, like someone had fired a Roman candle directly at the asphalt. The sun peeked out of the cloud, and something glinted in the corner of Battle's eye. He squinted and grimaced, thinking it was another piece of glass. He checked it out anyway, leaning in closer. It was a button. He picked it up, wiped the dirt off the surface. An image of a turtle with the letters TPHS riding its back. And under that, home of the terrible Terrapins. Angel felt ill. Her neck ached. Something felt broken, like glass was being rubbed around inside her body. A cough had developed deep in her chest. She felt like she'd been swallowing all day, sniffling too. Little ones, like she was fighting off a cold. But each cough made her stomach and sides ache. And even though she'd run home after what she did to Kenzie, and even though Steve wasn't there to pester and irritate her, and even though she'd gone straight to bed and slept for at least two hours, she woke up gagging, ran for the bathroom, and vomited up blood. She flushed and got up to wash out her mouth, and had just dried her hands when Steve banged on the door. Angel? She glared at it. Angel, open the goddamn door right now. I'm sick, Steve. Open the door, or I'm gonna rim it. I'm undressed, Steve. He banged on the door again, once, hard. Do you want to see me naked? Is that it? Your school call today. Can you give me a minute, please? Did you assault another student? I said just a minute, Steve. I want answers. You know I do business around town. Your behavior, I said one goddamn minute! The silence on the other side of the door was more unnerving than any amount of pounding he could have delivered. When he finally spoke, it was with a calm, measured tone that belied his anger. 
You have 60 seconds. If you're not downstairs by then, I'll... Fine. Now leave me alone. 15 minutes later, Angel burst out of her front door and ran as fast as she could down the driveway, out onto the sidewalk, and away. Far away. As far from her house as she could get. If someone had seen her, if anyone had cared even the slightest to pay attention to what was going on, they would have seen the rumpled collar of her shirt and the tear in her sleeve. But nobody was paying attention. Nobody had paid attention since her father died. That was the problem. Which was why, in addition to her clothes being rumpled and torn, her eye was nearly swollen shut, and there were speckles of blood on her pant legs. Angel? Angel nearly jumped. She couldn't stop the yelp that came from her throat. It was Darius. She turned her head so he couldn't see her eye. Oh, hi, she said. You okay? He was looking at her clothes. She tightened her collar. Yeah, I'm fine, thanks. Then, to distract him, you working at the Palms tonight? He plucked at the polo he was wearing. Nah, I got a new job. Okay, well, have a good shift. She was already moving away. She didn't want him to see her. If he did, he'd want to call the police, and if the police came, Angel, you sure you're okay? Yeah. Where are you going? I've got to go, Darius. But where? Bye, see you tomorrow morning. He watched her leave, a concerned look on his face. After a while, he shook his head and went back to his house to ask his mom for a ride to work. Soon it grew dark, and Angel found herself wandering around a shopping center a few miles from home. Her feet hurt from walking, and her back, too, and she was starving. She passed the sub shop and paused at the window, looking longingly at a family eating inside. The mother glanced up at her, and then away again to say something to the father, who turned and stared at Angel until she went away. There was a bench outside the foodway where the stock boys and cashiers took their breaks and smoked cigarettes. It was empty now, and Angel collapsed onto it, holding her side, trying not to feel the shards moving around inside her, the terrible pain in her neck, and now, the new wound, the one in her eye, not the swollen one, that made it feel like a pike had been pushed into her skull. Trying not to cough only made the cough worse. She leaned back on the bench and rested. It felt like only a second had passed when she felt someone shake her shoulder. Hey. Hey, you okay? Angel's eyes flew open. A man was standing over her. He was holding a child. She tried to sit up. No, no, no. Don't get up. I'm fine. No, you're hurt. The girl's sick, Daddy, his little girl said. I know, sweetie. We're going to help her, okay? The little girl nodded solemnly. No, really, I'm fine. Stop. I'm going to get you a few things. Are you hungry? Angel's stomach grumbled as if on cue, and the man smiled. Hungry, his daughter said. Hungry. Sounds like it, huh? Then, to Angel, stay here. I'll be right back. He started inside, and Angel said, wait. Yeah? Angel didn't know why she told him to stop. She needed something from him, something beyond her physical needs. She needed confirmation, friendly confirmation. So she said, I'm Angel. The man smiled. Marco. Angel leaned her head back as he went inside and rested her eyes again. She heard the electric door open and close and smiled, marveling at the kindness of strangers. A sweet spring breeze kicked up the scent of lilac from the stretch of woods next to the parking lot, and the far-off rush of the highway was actually kind of soothing. She was just drifting off when she heard a car rattle to a stop on the other side of the entrance. The doors squealed and cracked when they opened. You ready? Let's do this! Footsteps, as whoever it was, ran into the store. They'd left the car running. The gunshot jolted Angel awake. She sat up, hissing, and turned, holding her side. 
Two people in masks, one black, one orange, were at the front of the store pointing their guns at the customers and the shaking cashier. Marco and his little girl were there. The man in the orange mask approached him, screaming, Get down on the floor, now! And when he didn't move fast enough, orange mask hit him in the head with the butt of his gun, and Marco went down on his knees, still holding his crying daughter. Shut that kid up! Angel stood wearily to her feet. It hurt to walk at first, but when her foot cut on the wheel of a cart, she had to flex her stomach for balance, and then it hurt even worse. It felt like her insides would burst. The door slid aside, and she limped toward the thieves. Black Mask turned and pointed his gun at her. Whoa, 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 whoa! Get on your fucking face, now! Angel took a moment to catch her breath. Get down now, or I'll fucking execute you right here! Somebody said, just do what he says, honey, and nobody will get hurt. Shut up! Who said that? Angel met his gaze and held it. She could feel the rage building inside her, and with it, the power. The power that helped her on the path, the power that helped her humiliate Kenzie, the power that helped her stop Steve from hurting her ever again. Black Mask screamed, On your face, bitch! Now! Angel let the power build, and even though it hurt, she smiled at him, knowing what was about to happen. No, she said. Black Mask swung his arm back to hit her with the gun, and that's when she jumped. She felt the impact but not on her face, not yet at least. Still, the crunch as fist connected with face was satisfying. Even more satisfying was the look on her face as the creep inside tried to figure out what had just happened. She watched herself stare around, suddenly terrified. Help! She screamed. Help me! Help me! Worried that he might take her body and run, she belted herself two more times. Her body crumpled to the ground. Orange Mask was jumping up and down now. Yeah! Yeah! Get some! It was then that Angel noticed how amped up she felt, dizzy and, of course, high. It was strange, too, because the man's body she jumped into was stronger than hers, only by virtue of the fact that it was male. But it was also weak and shaky, and the craving for more of whatever drug they'd tweaked out on consumed her. Yo, get the fed, man, get the fed! The fed? The pseudo-fed, man? Oh, shit, behind you! Angel turned around and saw her own bloodied body leap at her, the next second they were on the ground, flailing. Shoot her, dog! Shoot her! No way that was going to happen. She blocked the attack as best she could, but it was too frenzied, a fit of pure animal violence. Fingers clawed at the black mask, tore her eyes as the assailant grunted and growled and punched and gouged. Shit, Dougie, if you won't do it! The thug in the orange mask marched over, gun raised at the girl attacking his friend, and Angel, still in black mask's body, screamed, No! Shit, dog, what do you mean? and she shot him three times in the chest. The hostages screamed, and Angel screamed, and the man inside her body, the addict, paused just long enough to give Angel enough time to clock him in the side of the head and knock him off her. Then she stood up, put the gun on the ground next to her own body, and jumped back. She was smiling when he realized what had just happened. She picked up the gun and aimed it at him. You bitch! He snarled. Then he leaped at her, and she pulled the trigger. It took Battle the rest of the day and every string he could pull to get the warrant, but he got it. Now it was half past nine and he was holding the front door to TPHS, home of the terrible Terrapins, open, while the principal, a stocky little man with wide shoulders and a wrestler's neck, removed his keys from the lock. Larry Lovegrove. 
former Division V college athlete, former gym teacher, sufferer of gout, and self-described student whisperer. Students like me, he often said. I'm their kind of administrator. And it was true. The students did like him, which was good because nobody else did. Not his faculty, not his staff, and especially not his wife. Telling you this is highly irregular, he complained as he led battle into the school. The alarm warning began to sound, and he scuttled over to the panel on the wall in the office to punch in the code. Larry Lovegrove was not used to being told what to do. As principal, he delivered the directives, meted out punishments, directed staff, disciplined teachers. Having another man tell him what to do in his own school offended his very nature. And yet there was nothing to be done. The warrant was legal. The man was a detective. Yet, as irritated as it made him, he had to admit that being part of such an important investigation titillated him a bit. He'd helped the police before, of course. It was part of the job. Indeed, he'd always believed he would make a good detective. He could sniff out a lying teacher in a microsecond, no matter how many times they took a Monday or a Friday off for a doctor's appointment, no matter how many times they asked to skip a parent-teacher conference for personal reasons. Though he felt the need to put on an air of irritated superiority, it was, after all, his high school. This was the first time he'd ever been called out of bed and forced to hand over official discipline records. Whatever one of his students had done must have been very, very bad. He couldn't wait to find out what it was. To be woken in the middle of the night on a fool's errand, you do realize that tomorrow is spirit day, do you not? If you could just show me the discipline reports. Were... Discipline reports? For how long? Battle felt his jaw clench. Last Wednesday through today. Lovegrove grumbled, though the request wasn't too unreasonable. Look, I'm looking for anything violent. Were there any bad fights recently? We are five days away from spring break, detective. And spring break came late this year. Battle stared at him. Stone-faced. Yes, Lovegrove said. There were fights. The children can barely contain themselves. Follow me. He led Battle to his office and unlocked it. A folder was already sitting on his desk, and he picked it up and handed it to the detective. Four fights today alone. Give me a moment to find the others. They're on my computer. Battle flipped through the files in the folder. The first two fights were not very interesting at all. Straight-up brawls, it seemed, between long-time enemies. But the third... Ah, the third was so strange. He took the report out of the folder and read it more closely. And when he was done, he put it down on Lovegrove's keyboard. This one, he said, tapping the page. Is this for real? Let me see. Lovegrove adjusted his spectacles. Oh, yeah. Kenzie Washington. <laughs> Such a mouth on that child. She's been in and out of school for nearly five years. She's here on a waiver. We've been trying to get her expelled for months. Has she ever done anything like this before? Like this? No. Bullying, fighting, skipping, cheating, failing every class. But never anything so abnormal as this. He tapped the paper. I bet anything she's the one you're looking for. You know, I've often been told I'm make a... And this other girl? Battle leaned forward. Angel Fletcher. Has she ever been in trouble before? No. I'm embarrassed to say that I didn't even know the child before this. I'm a good principal, sir. A people person. And do you have a video of the incident? Yes, of course. It took him a moment to access the folder and bring up the files. And then he had to fast forward through the day. They run all night, you see. This happened during first lunch. Let's see. Ah, here it is. Though I gotta warn you, it's very distressing to watch. Just play it. Lovegrove pushed the space bar and moved aside so Battle could see the screen. It showed a typical high school lunchroom. Students eating and talking, a few up and moving around. 
Battle spotted a girl pushing her way through the crowd, a singular look of intent and anger on her face. She seemed to be aiming for a tall, older girl sitting at a table with several other, possibly younger, students. Angel Fletcher. Had to be. She snatched a carton of milk from a student who wasn't looking. Then she zeroed in on the tall girl, that must have been Kenzie Washington, and dumped it all over her head. Kenzie stood up and, stop, rewind it a little. I really don't see the... Battle picked the laptop up himself and worked the trackpad on his own. Angel dumped the milk over Kenzie's head. Kenzie stood up and confronted her, and... There. Angel arched her back just a little bit while at the same time Kenzie flinched. Then Angel looked down at her hands, seemingly baffled. Were there any burns on the cafeteria tile? Burns? No, I don't think... Actually, now that I think of it, one of our janitors was complaining. I need Angel's address. Uh, I, I'm sorry, sir, but I don't think the warrant you have covers that. But Battle had already taken his phone out of his pocket. He was about to open the app to call William when the phone vibrated and the caller ID announced that William was already calling him. He accepted the call. William, I need you to get me a... Battle, where are you? Terrace Point High School? Terrace Point? Why? I'm working your case, William. Well, get down to the foodway in Brookfield. No, I need a warrant for an address. I think I know who... A perp just killed again. We have a video. I have video here, too. We can't get another warrant until the morning. Come down here. You've got to see this. They watched the CCTV footage in the manager's office. Watched the thieves enter. Watched them bully and yell and order everybody around. And then Angel entered the building. That's her, Battle said. That's the kid, Angel Fletcher. Do you know who that is? William asked the manager. No, I've never seen her before. They watched as the girl confronted the thieves, and the thief in the black mask knocked her to the ground, and she attacked him, clawing at his face and eyes. The second thief approached, and his friend shot him. Why would he do that? William wondered aloud. Back it up a little, Battle said. The manager, a better listener than Lovegrove, rewound it a few seconds and stopped. More. Back to where she first says something. Keep going. Keep going. Stop. Hit play. They watched all the way to the end, right up to the point where the thief basically handed her his weapon. There. Did you see that? She arched her back again at the end there. She did it twice, once at the start, right before she shot the guy. So? It's just interesting. William looked at him skeptically. What? It's what you hired me for, right? William sighed. What's her name again? Angel Fletcher. Battle went to the door and called one of the officers over. His name tag read T. Simmons. What's your first name, officer? Tyler, sir. You don't have to call me, sir. You don't work for me. Okay. Listen, I need you to get me something. If I don't work for you, then why would I do that? William, just do what he says, son. Yes, sir. I need you to look up the address for any Fletchers there are in a 20-mile radius. The officer was tapping the name into his phone. F-L-E-T-C-H-E-R? That's it. He and William rewatched the video while they waited. What happened to the blue glow shit? William asked. I don't see any glowing angels here. I don't think we can see it, but I bet there'll be some burn marks in the tile later. The officer returned. There's about 40 Fletchers in the area. No angel listed. She's a kid. Oh, right. I can start making some calls. A commotion interrupted William's response, and Battle looked over the officer's shoulder. A few of the employees were giving the officers a hard time, mouthing off, acting stupid. They were young, high school age. That won't be necessary, he said. He signaled to one of the patrolmen. Officer, bring those two in here. What? One of the kids said. 
We ain't done shit, yo. This is butt. Shut up, the officer snapped. He grabbed the kid's arm and shoved him toward the office. Don't put your hands on me. His friend took out his cell and started filming. Yo, yo, this is straight up harassment. The officer turned to him and said, you too. Am I being detained? Just get over there, kid. Can I have your name and badge number? The officer sighed and rolled his eyes. Are you going to come or not? Not until I get your name and badge number. You're infringing on my rights. Oh, yeah? Which ones? If I'm not being detained, I don't have to go anywhere with you. What am I being held for? You bad-mouthing me, kid? The boy clamped his mouth shut, and the officer grabbed him and pushed him toward the office. Battle stepped aside to let them in. You, he told the kid with the camera, turn that off. This is a public place, officer. I can film this. Battle snatched it out of his hands. Hey, that's my property. You can't... Shut up. You're not in trouble. Neither of you are. We need your help. Help? The boy looked uncertain. What's your name, son? Don't tell him, Darius. Darius rolled his eyes at his friend, who looked down at his feet. Oh, snap. Darius, that's your name? Darius also looked down at his feet. Yeah. Look, we just need your help. We need you to ID somebody. Can I have my phone back? When we're done here. I know my rights. That's my personal property. I can film you in public. And I can stop you from interfering with an investigation. I need you to watch this video and tell me if you know this person or not. If you film it and post it and our POI sees it, that's interference. Oh, you want me to snitch on someone? I'm asking for your help, Darius. Someone you know might need us. Darius thought for a moment, then he said, Okay. All right. I'm going to press play. And you tell me if you recognize anybody on the screen. Got it? Yeah. Battle hit the space bar and the video started up. The thieves stormed the store, carrying on as they did, and an angel walked in from the front entrance. Battle didn't watch the screen. He watched Darius's reaction. You know that girl? His friend punched him in the arm. Ow, man! Don't say nothing, Darius! Snitches get stitches! Darius, if you know her, you've got to tell me. She needs our help. Darius seemed to be struggling with a response. He was shaking his head, working through it, and then he said, I know her. Who is it? It's my friend, Angel. Angel Fletcher? Yeah. To William, Battle said, That's the same girl from the school incident. To Darius, he said, Do you know where she lives? Darius glared at him. Okay, Darius, you're the constitutional scholar. Do you know what the penalty for interfering with an investigation is? Don't say anything, D. I don't have to say anything. It's a trick question. That ain't included in the Constitution. Battle and William shared a half smile. Kid knows his stuff, William said. Yeah, you're right, kid. But this is a state law. Obstruction of justice is a class one misdemeanor here. You could get 12 months. If I was 18, I'm only 16. Sorry, buddy. That's not the way it works. D, his friend said. Don't do it, man. But the pressure was too much for the boy, and he broke down. She lives over on Lakehurst Court, 2406. House at the end, straight back. Angel's house was dark as the patrol cars pulled up to the driveway. There were four in all, not including Battle and William, who drove separately. Two officers approached the front door of her house. Two others hoofed it around back. Two more stayed with their vehicles. And the final two officers dispatched themselves to the neighbors, where they knocked on doors and ordered anyone inside to shelter in place and stay away from the windows. Many ignored the second half of the warning, and Battle shook his head as he observed form after form appear at window after window, some peeking furtively between curtain and blind, some standing brazenly in full view. He got out of the cruiser and went around back to join William, who was standing, calm in hand, behind the open door. William spoke into the comm. Officer Simmons, sit rep. He waited. Tyler, do you copy? I'm telling you, William, Battle said. Armed and dangerous isn't enough. 
William was only half listening. Officer Simmons, do you copy? A voice came over the comm, entering basement, radio silence. William looked momentarily satisfied. What do you want me to tell him? That the girl can control their minds? That's not what I said. Armed and dangerous is the best I can do. You brought me in for this, remember? What would you have me do? Battle had been thinking about the statement he read from Ian Cummings, how he saw the girl glow like an angel, about the videos he saw, how in each one the girl arched her back, how Kenzie Washington and the thief in the black mask flinched at nearly the same moment, about how after that the girl seemed not to know who she was or where she was. Then the violence broke out. William, don't let them go in armed. William looked at him like he suggested they take off all their clothes. What? Their guns at least tell them? But it was too late. The officers were already inside. Battle grabbed the comm out of William's hands. Officer, stand down! Stand down now and leave the house immediately! What the hell, Sebastian? Leave the house now! Shouts from inside, followed by gunfire. Shit! William snatched the comm out of his hand, barking, Officer Simmons, update! Update! Then, as Battle ran for the front door, Battle, stop! Battle ditched his gun in the yard. The windows lit up with more gunfire. He heard William shout one more time, and then he was in the front door, standing in the foyer. The lights were all out, and but for the cold glow of the moon, the house was still dark. He closed the door and leaned against it to catch his breath. A booted foot lay at the end of the short hall that opened up into the kitchen. He inched toward it. Officer. Nothing. He knelt down when he got close to the end of the hall, grabbed the ankle, and shook it. Officer. Still nothing. From here he could see a little farther into the kitchen. A gun was lying near the island, only a few feet away. He heard a noise, a soft thump. Angel? Here! It was a male voice, another one of the officers, calling from the living room. She took my comm and my gun. Is that you, Simmons? Yeah. What's your first name? What? What's your first name? Don't you know it? I need you to say it. It's Tyler. Tyler Simmons. Okay. Okay. Is she with you, Officer Simmons? Who? The girl. Is she in there? She was. I asked her name and then... I don't know what happened. She... I saw... Ben shot me in the back. I can't feel my arm. Where did she go? I don't know. All right, sit tight, Officer Simmons. Sit tight! Call it in! I'm bleeding out! A second round of gunfire came up from the basement, and a bullet blasted through the floor and ricocheted off a pot hanging from a rack over the island with a cartoonish ping. The door to the basement was right behind him, and he ripped it open and danced aside, ducking his head into the opening twice. When no more shots came, he ducked around a third time and held position. A third officer lay on the landing at the bottom, his body twisted. He was bleeding from the head, and a dark stain splattered the wall behind him. Battle crept down the stairs, grimacing with each creak and pop. He stepped over and around the dead man on the landing and faced the basement. It was partially finished, with the rooms framed out but no drywall. The fourth officer lay a few feet away, unconscious but still breathing. He'd been shot in the head too, but it was a glancing blow at a strange angle, like he tried to shoot himself and pulled away at the last second. A noise came from a corner, and a little form hobble-dashed from the shadows and toward the back door. Angel, wait! Battle sprinted after her, through the basement, out the door, and around the corner in the backyard. Then again, and up into the front yard, Angel was limping toward William, who drew his gun and ordered her to stop. Angel, no! Her back arched, William flinched, and then she was staring down at her hands, screaming, What the fuck? What the fuck is going on? William turned to face the two final officers, now standing at their vehicles behind the open doors, guns drawn. He fired once and the window exploded. The second one hit one of the men in the shoulder and he cried out and dropped. The second officer cursed and fell behind the cruiser. 
Battle's gun was still lying in the grass where he tossed it. He snatched it up. Angel, stop! William spun, holding his gun in two shaking hands. He fired once, missed, and Battle sprinted forward. He cut left, and William fired and missed again, and then Battle was on him. He ducked around and put him in a full Nelson, one hand on his neck, pressing his gun against his head. Drop the gun or I'll shoot. She didn't. You want to die in this old man's body? He knew she was thinking about jumping again. Could she jump into him? If she wanted to, she would have already. I'll just find someone else. You sure that's how it works? She didn't respond. Battle, what the hell is going on? It was William and Angel. Sit tight, William. Then, to Angel, who is in William's body. What's it going to be, little girl? Then he saw it, what the report had described. William's body stiffened in his grasp, his back arched, and a blue glow emanated from within. Battle gasped and took a startled step back, watching the sparks fly out of William's head like a Roman candle. Then William jerked, and Angel's body jerked, and it was over. The girl collapsed to the ground, crying. Battle, what the fuck? William said. Angel rolled over onto her side, drawing her legs into her belly, her back shaking as she wept. Battle went to her, leaned over, and touched her shoulder. Hey, hey, you're going to be okay. It hurts. It hurts. We're going to get you some help. Don't worry. Her eyes met his, and she smirked. Oh, shit. He tried to turn and run, but it was too late. He felt himself flying forward, like he'd been yanked by some invisible force. And then he was no longer inside himself. He was in her, staring at the asphalt. His insides felt shattered and broken. His head split open. He rolled over and then there he was, his body at least, holding his gun against his temple. The smile on his face was unrecognizable. He closed his eyes, finger twitching. A gunshot rang out and battle was sucked into the void. One week later, William walked into a hospital room filled with nurses and orderlies who were standing around a bed, laughing. Twenty minutes, one of them said, turning as he started to leave. That's hysterical. William stood aside as they passed, nodding at a few, and then it was just him and the patient, Sebastian Battle IV, sitting up in bed. William, he said. He nodded at his arm. Just had to aim for the bone, didn't you? Yeah, well, I didn't think you'd mind considering I was saving your life and all. Tell me you got her. Oh, we got her all right. No, I mean, she's dead, right? William smiled. We got her, Battle. We got her. Battle nodded, apprising his friend. William pulled out his wallet and removed a check from the billfold. Your remuneration, fully funded. He tossed it on Battle's lap. And the hospital stay? Don't you have insurance? Yeah, but the co-pay's 20%. I'm not so sure. I mean, 20% is a lot. Damn, William, I didn't take this job to... But William was already laughing. Oh, okay, all right. Thanks, I guess. Don't ever say I never did anything for you. You mean like this job? Exactly like this job. Do me a favor, then. Don't ever do anything for me ever again. William shook his head. Can't guarantee that, my friend. He backed up to the door, palms up. I'm serious, William. So am I. So am I. No windows, no light. Four walls. Brick. One floor. Brick. One ceiling. Brick. Twice a day, a slot opened in the door and a plate of food was shoved through it. Every now and then, the room fogged with some kind of strange smoke, harsh, overly sweet and chemical, and she passed out. When she woke, her head aching, there was another bandage on her body. 
She tried to jump several times, let the blue light well up inside her, felt the spark shoot out, but the walls were too thick, and without a target, she had no sense for it. So she waited, and she waited. They were careful now, but eventually they would get comfortable, care less. And when they did, when they did, they did. Hey, hey, everybody. Thanks again for tuning into the Mad Tales podcast. I hope you are enjoying all of the new stories. If you are interested in buying the wounded, the sick, and the dead, it will be available in digital and paperback on Tuesday, August 27. If it's past that, if you're listening to this past that, it's already available. You can pre-order it on my website, jamesknoll.net forward slash WSD. So that's J-A-M-E-S-N-O-L-L dot net forward slash WSD. D. If you pre-order it, or if you've missed the pre-order and you just want to order it afterwards, you get the digital copy, a signed paperback, mailed to you, and when the audiobook is complete, I will send you a digital copy of that as well. So, the Wounded, the Sick, and the Dead package is $9.99 right now for the pre-order, and the price will go up on the release day, which is Tuesday, August 27, 2019. You can check that out if you're interested in getting it at jamesknoll.net forward slash WSD once again. So thanks again for listening. You guys are awesome. Please keep on sending me feedback and hopefully you'll check out all the stuff at my website or support me on my uh, Mad Tales Patreon. And a bit about the Patreon. There are three different levels of support. You can give me a dollar a month for however long you want. And I will give you a thank you and a shout out on the podcast. Uh, you can give me $5 a month for however long you want. And not only do you get a thank you and a shout out, but I will also give you access for as long as you are supporting me uh, to all of my eBooks and all of the audio that includes the audiobooks and the music. And you can get that in the users area of the Mad Tales Patreon account or Patreon account or however you want to pronounce that. And then there is a $10 level. The $10 level gives you both the $1 level and the $5 level prizes. And you also get your own short story from my personalized, my customized short story service. If you are interested in any of that, you need to go to patreon.com forward slash mad tales. So thanks once again and tune in next week for a new short story.